The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal business tax or investment advice or be used to evaluate any investment or security and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. Welcome to 16 Minutes, where we talk about the news and where we are in the long arc of tech trends. I'm Zorin. In today's episode, we're talking about two trends, including the news of a recent decision by the SEC on direct listings that'll give startups new options for raising money. But first, we're talking about news in the world of AI and machine learning, with the recent unveiling of DALI, which is a deep neural network developed by OpenAI that creates images based on text inputs. Now, the context here is that last summer, OpenAI released an API for the machine learning model GPT-3, which caused a stir with the way it could produce text that was hard to distinguish from human writing. Now comes Dali, which is spelled D-A-L-L hyphen E. The name is inspired by Salvador Dali, the surrealist painter, and Pixar's animated film WALL-E, which gives a hint of the surrealism combined with animation, combined with robotic futurism that this new neural network is playing in. So just to summarize the arc of innovation here, GPT-3 was a 175 billion parameter machine learning model that processed language to produce new writing. DALI is a scaled down 12 billion parameter model that processes language to create new images using a data set of text image pairs. How it works is you feed it a phrase or a sentence and it will produce plausible images from scratch. For example, the phrase, an armchair in the shape of an avocado will yield dozens of photorealistic images of exactly that. Now, this is early. There's no API yet for developers, no code release, and OpenAI's blog post announcing this doesn't offer full research results. With us to explain where this sits on the long arc of innovation is A16Z operating partner, Frank Chen. Frank previously appeared with Sonal on a special 2X 16 Minutes episode called GPT-3 Beyond the Hype, which offers great context about the larger world of AI and predictive learning. Frank explains what DALI is, how its transformer-type architecture is able to infer information, and what uses we might see as this technology develops. But he starts off by explaining what DALI tells us about the current state of computer science and how we're getting into uncharted waters with machine learning models. Most of the big successes in AI to date are, I'm going to give you a gazillion examples, then you can you know, figure out for instance, what's in the picture or how to summarize the document. This is an example of a system where I didn't give you a gazillion examples of avocados or arb chairs or snails or clocks, a snail made of a harp, but it's somehow able to generate them. Only one other computer on the planet that knows how to do that, which is human brains. We're in this sort of phase of computer science where the Research scientists that are inventing these algorithms actually have no idea what the algorithms are capable of. Right now, what we're seeing is we're seeing sort of the experimental side of computer science. And just at the highest level, what is DALI? So there are two basic parts to DALI. One is an image generator that takes as input a description, like a text description. And then the second part is think of it as a ranker. Like, I'm given 512 plausible images, I'm going to pick the dozen or 28 best ones. And so there's this thing that generates the image, and then there's the thing that looks at all the generated images and says, these are the best. It's this amazing sort of application that sits on top of the core neural net that is GPT-3. 
And you can go to the blog post where OpenAI unveiled this. And there's a bunch of examples. For example, a pentagonal green clock looks like what it sounds like. And then, of course, it gets into harder and harder things like a collection of glasses sitting on a table, you know, where you have many objects and not just one. And the idea that it's sitting on the table, of course, raises the question of, well, how will it look on that table and how will it be presented and what will be the point of view and what will be the perspective? So this is where it gets really interesting. Again, trying to tease apart what's significant about this and what's hype and what's real. What is the true advance or milestone we're seeing with Dolly? You know, look, this is the generational quest, multi-generational quest of our lifetimes, which is can we program computers to think and act and generalize like the human brain? The sample images that are in the blog post, they're all what I call plausible, which is those images look natural. The researchers didn't do anything specifically to say, well, you know what, like avocados are green and armchairs have four legs and are designed for sitting. One of the image examples is capybara in a field at sunrise, and somehow the model infers that because it's sunrise, there needs to be a certain type of lighting involved there, and there's shadows that are cast. Again, this is not part of the training model, but really fascinating that the image comes out with shadows you'd see at sunrise. Somehow this system is inferring those rules to generate the images. The tantalizing prospect is we're a step closer to what's called zero-shot reasoning, which is it's in contrast to sort of very data-heavy model building. There are three examples in the paper generate an illustration of a baby daikon radish in a tutu walking a dog. Which is exactly as cute as it sounds. You would be convinced that like a child book illustrator created those images. And then you also have like, build me an image that's the exact same as the cat. And it shows you a picture of a cat in sketch form. And then you have another one that's a professional high quality emoji of a love struck cup of boba. Okay, so you've got an emoji you've got a sketch and you've got an illustration. Each one of those implies a visual style and each genre has an internal logic to it, right? An illustration, you know what an illustration looks like and how that's different than an emoji and how that is different than a sketch, right? It's sort of the roughness of the lines and the fidelity of the color and like whether you're trying to reflect shadows or not and so on and so forth. Like with the emoji, you're not really reflecting shadows. It generated images of those types correctly, Right. So we've never seen that before, which is the ability to just from text say, I want an illustration or I want an emoji or I want a sketch. And it successfully generates all of those. And what's fascinating here is sort of the coherence of the images is a phrase that comes to mind. And you mentioned the snail and harp kind of combined. And when you look at that image on the site, there's an artistic sense to it. It's not just like a harp jammed onto a snail. The harp is sort of embedded in a very elegant way in the curves of the snail's shell. And it feels artistic. It feels human. To what can we attribute that? How it is that the model can do that? When we talk about neural network architectures, what we're really talking about, what are the nodes? How are they connected to other nodes? Are backlinks permissible? What are the weights of the nodes represented as? So think of it as a big data structure. These were originally inspired by the human brain, which is you have neurons in your brain and they are connected to other neurons with synapses and there's chemical signals that adjust the weights of those synapses. And so, you know, the theory is as you learn things, uh, weights of synapses between neurons in your brain are being updated. And basically a skill is the sum of all of those synapse weights connecting all of those neurons. And we've done the same thing in computers and these are enormous, enormous sort of models, 12 billion parameters is the size of this model. Still not as many neurons and connections between neurons as the human brain, but, you know, we're on the path. 
We're in this incredibly experimental productive phase where we're trying different ways to connect these things up and we're getting surprisingly general results with each successive step. The original feed-forward networks were sort of built in the 1950s. And so we've been at it for quite a while, right? So it's 2020, it's 70 years into this research, but it's basically in the last five years that we've seen the exponential step function usefulness of these models. And so by updating the weights in these models in a particular way, we're getting this generalized behavior. And so one of the tantalizing hopes is that we've hit upon an approach that can scale and eventually we get AGI, like human brain-like capabilities. So there are some weaknesses, right? It doesn't like nail it every single time. Here's an example, a loft bedroom with a white bed next to a nightstand. There's a fish tank standing beside the bed. So what I loved about this output was that the image had a slanted ceiling suggesting kind of a loft bedroom. In your mind, you sort of think of a loft having maybe a slanted ceiling. But the fish tank standing beside the bed in the image was right on top of the nightstand. So Dolly kind of thought, okay, there's a nightstand and there's a fish tank next to the bed. We're going to put the fish tank right on the nightstand. And we as humans kind of know that's not quite right. Fish tanks usually aren't on nightstands, like lamps and books and things are on nightstands and fish tanks sort of in the corner of the room. But it's certainly logically plausible. Like it's plausible for a fish tank to be sitting on a nightstand. It doesn't violate any laws of physics. I'm not sure I would consider that a failure. And especially if you were thinking, hey, what I'm building is a brainstorming app as opposed to, you know, the next generation Adobe Illustrator. Like, why wouldn't I want to include that in the candidate set? Should we consider that an error or an out-of-the-box possibility? That's a fantastic point you just made, which is my looking at that and thinking of it more like a bug or defaulting to that as being kind of quote-unquote wrong is not necessarily the case, especially if you're, again, using it in a brainstorming session or where it's like, not so fast, human. <laughs> you know, perhaps the nightstand is a good place for a fish tank. Maybe you need to redesign that fish tank or something. Your nightstand is too small, not your fish tank is too big. I'm looking forward to kind of like the creativity and the new thinking that happens when we basically have computer systems that are doing creative, out-of-the-box, probabilistic work. Look, the first 80 years of computer science, which is we wanted to do deterministic, logically consistent, repeatable things. And so this is another thing that the machine learning stuff really opens up is at the heart of our modern, sophisticated software systems, we're going to have these things that are, let's call it probabilistic or creative, right, depending on your point of view. What are we going to do with this or what possible use will this be in the real world? The low hanging fruit will be, you know, a new genre of creativity rules. So think about the next generation Photoshop and Illustrator that basically says, instead of when you do new file and I give you this blank canvas and a bunch of tools, imagine that you have this text input field and then I'll generate a hundred ideas and then you can take one and modify it, right? So think about the productivity boost that is for anything that is creative, right? Anything from an interior designer to a movie animator to Think about a product manager who wants to communicate a point to their engineering team in a visual way instead of just with dense text. Like all of that, I expect to sort of get built into things. Brainstorming, my goodness, just brainstorming possibilities where you're able to just write things or say things and have them be visually popping up as potential avenues to explore. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. If I was a owner of stock image sites, I'd probably be a little worried right now, you know, where you can just create images based on what you actually want rather than sifting through a bunch that are not quite what you want. Stock photo sites, okay, figure out how to make this part of your next generation product offering. How does this all eventually get commercialized and what role will it play in innovation and how will that look like? 
I would say, look, expect all of the big public cloud companies, Google, Amazon, Baidu, et cetera, to follow suit, right? There will be very, very large language models exposed as APIs, and you'll be able to buy it from Google Cloud or Microsoft Azure over time. And then on top of those will sit incredible applications that built on that foundation that solve real-world business problems. So Frank, you're a veteran of 16 Minutes. You know that we do this in every episode. Bottom line it for us, what's the big takeaway here? I think this gives us ways to reason about and learn about, like, what is it about the human brain that is amazing? And how is this thing like and unlike a human brain, right? And so there's just sort of a frontier of knowledge and understanding and introspection of how our brains work now that we're building these systems that are exhibiting, in some limited sense, sort of comparable problem-solving capabilities, generalization, ability to reason from very few examples. What can this thing tell us about ourselves and the way our brains work? We're at this moment where, you know, you're looking at the Ford Model T and you can definitely predict that, you know, horses are in big trouble. But you would not predict that, you know, flash forward 100 years based on the Ford Model T, Walmart is going to be the biggest private employer in the country. Like, you just can't see that, right? It's just too many steps forward. So I can't wait until we see some more of these in the rearview mirror. Frank, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me on. In our next segment, we're talking about the ongoing issue of the IPO process. There's been lots of talk about how IPOs are priced and the dynamics behind the notorious first day pop we hear so much about, as well as calls to improve the process to make it more efficient and fair for companies and investors. One potential way to do that is through direct listings, an alternative to IPOs that has been used recently by Spotify, Slack, and Palantir Technologies. In a direct listing, companies generally don't use banks as underwriters, and they go through a more streamlined and less expensive process to go public. Up until now, only existing shares have been made available to the public through direct listings, not new shares. Recently, though, the SEC approved a plan by the New York Stock Exchange to allow companies to offer new shares in direct listings. To help us make sense of this news, we had a quick chat with A16Z managing partner, Scott Cooper. Scott is a former investment banker who recently co-wrote a two-part series on the IPO process with A16Z general partner, Alex Rampell. Scott starts off by talking about the separation that has existed between raising capital in the direct listings process and how this new decision closes that gap. The issue is, uh, what if you want to do a direct listing, but you also need to raise money so you don't have enough money on your balance sheet? and you want to actually you know, sell some shares from the company that would add cash to the balance sheet. Before this decision, number one, you couldn't do it at the same time of the direct listing. Now, there was an alternative, which is some people said, hey, why don't you just raise money privately before you go do the direct listing, uh, which some companies were doing. And there was always this open question as to how long did you have to wait between that private offering and the direct listing to make sure that they are truly distinct so what this basic idea does is says, look, we don't need to worry about any of that stuff. If you, want, if you decide that a direct listing is the better process for going public, then you don't have to raise capital separately. You can choose that process and also at the same time actually raise what are called primary shares, meaning shares the company's issuing in order to get actually cash onto their balance sheet. Okay, so that's the basic news of what just happened and what companies will now be able to do under this rule. What about the bigger picture and, and kind of where this sits in the overall ecosystem and, and kind of what it means in the context of IPO innovation? For a long time, the IPO, IPO market was incredibly stayed, right? There was one way to do it. There was a pricing scheme. And then a lot of people have been concerned about, gee, is pricing very efficient in this market, which is why people worry when they see these big pops. Um, and so we've really had a bunch of innovation happening over the last couple of years. You've had, uh, number one, direct listings in their prior form, which was only what we call secondary shares. 
Now we have direct listings plus primary shares. We've also had SPACs as really another alternative to, to get going public. I think the big picture here is there are more ways for companies to get liquid. And I think that's a good thing for everybody. It's a good thing for the retail investor. It's a good thing for the company. It's a good thing for potentially existing shareholders or selling shareholders. You now have a menu of options you can choose from and determine what do you want to maximize? Do you want to maximize for price? Do you want to maximize for choosing your investor base? Do you want to maximize for being able to give longer term forecasts that often people do in a SPAC context? So now there's just many, many uh, more choices. And I think that's a very positive thing for the ecosystem. I think the main thing, though, for companies is, look, you should investigate all these things and really figure out which flavor makes sense for you. And also, I think the main positive for companies is this probably does mean that, look, from an efficiency perspective and a cost perspective, there will be more competition given there are more choices in the market. And I think that's a positive thing. One of the knocks on on the IPO process currently with the IPO pop, et cetera, is that companies have to leave money on the table and it's these institutional investors who, who make out the best. And in fact, there were some institutional investor groups who were against this uh, recent proposal. The big objections came from large institutional investors and also from kind of what you would call retail protection investor groups as well. Those are really the two categories. And they were both basically said the same thing. Their concerns were, they said, look, we worry that this might increase fraud or bad behavior. And their argument was, look, in a normal, what we call an underwritten IPO, there's a whole process of diligence that the bankers go through, and everybody knows the legal regime under which they're accountable to. And so that kind of functions as a diligence and a fraud reduction or potentially bad actor reduction process. The second thing they worried about, and this was mostly probably for retail investors, is there's this arcane issue around tracing. The basic idea is in an IPO, all the shares that get sold typically in that IPO are what are called registered. They're traced to that initial registration statement. They're all registered under that statement. And so if there's a misstatement or something misleading under that IPO prospectus, the law is very clear that you as an individual shareholder could sue the company for misrepresentation because you bought a share that was directly came from effectively that underwriting process. What the uh, folks worried about here is look at a direct listing process. It's not clear uh, in part because sometimes you have secondary shares involved and other and other types of ways to distribute the shares it's harder to make that traceability argument and they worry that that might be a problem and therefore lead to less legal recourse if something bad happens. So what does the SEC say to those arguments? What they basically said at the end of the day is, look, we think there's enough other checks and balances in the system that we're not worried about increased fraud here, number one. And they also said as to this issue around traceability, that's not really a direct listing problem. It's a function of kind of uh, you know, whether you have lockups or not, and kind of the interpretations that courts have had. So they said, look, that's a real issue that maybe people should talk about, but it's not a reason not to do a direct listing. And so their view was on balance, what this did was it opened up the system to more people, it enabled greater efficiency in price discovery. And in their mind, that's a positive thing if that all leads to greater capital formation in the, in the U.S. capital markets. So one of the selling points of direct listings is that it will lead to a more efficient marketplace where you can more quickly get to a real market, so to speak, rather than kind of the artificial constraints that were part of the IPO process. So how can this potentially lead to more efficient markets? Number one is literally the auction process they use to establish the opening price for the stock. It is a true auction process in the sense that they are literally going out to as many shareholders as they can and and literally establishing that demand curve. And they understand it, you know, to the you know, at each level of increment. Um, the other theory behind direct listings, which may or may not be proven yet, is that it gives retail investors a broader ability to participate in these auctions. So retail investors often get relatively small allocations in these IPOs, and they are mostly relegated to the aftermarket, where the stock prices obviously tend to be higher in a traditional IPO. And so 
in a true auction mechanism, again, in theory, there is a way to aggregate broader retail demand as well, and therefore give them greater access to it. So I think those are the those are the tricks. Now, again, the, the challenge is, what does that mean in terms of how the stock trades in the aftermarket? And, you know, again, we've only had a class of four, so we don't yeah. know that much. But so far, it took Spotify almost a year to get back above its initial listing price. Uh, the other companies that have gone so far have had mixed experiences as well in terms of aftermarket performance. And I think there's a reasonable question to ask, which is, you know, as a CEO, is that the best thing for you as a company to have the stock trade like that? Or even if you have to give up a little bit on the IPO pop, is it better to have, you know, what looks like a more monotonically increasing stock price over time? There's sort of a narrative or PR aspect to that, or even almost a psychological aspect to that for the company. Yeah, I think that's right. Bottom line it for us, Scott, what are the major takeaways from this decision? Look, bottom line is, I think this is a very positive thing for all constituents. The main thing it does is it gives people choice. Choice generally leads to more efficiency. It leads to lower prices. It leads to better price discovery, hopefully broader retail participation in these. Uh, and so I don't think this is the end of the innovation at all in the marketplace. I think we will see more things happening. But uh, overall, I think this is a positive move in the right direction to help continue to bring innovation and efficiency into the IPO process. Scott, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me.